0: Well, let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we're into chapter 13 now. I'll be reading from verse 25 of chapter 12 through to verse 12 of chapter 13. Please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we're looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Title of the sermon, simply, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Commentary says, the call of Barnabas and Paul takes place in the context of worship, led by teachers and prophets who have been fasting. Everything about the event argues that mission is grounded in God's command and the response of a church engaged in devotion. The Spirit directs that the two be sent out and the church is obedient to the call. We'll look first at the setting. and We'll look at the certain prophets and teachers that are mentioned to us and pause a bit and look at each of them. Two of them we already know about, three of them we don't. One of them, maybe we do. You'll see. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, we'll look at that idea of ministering to the Lord, and we'll talk some about fasting. We'll see the Holy Spirit speaks, and we don't know, was it audible? Was it through the work uh, of a prophet? We don't know for sure. And they respond with fasting, prayer, commission, and obedience. And we'll look at that, how they respond to the Lord's command to them. And then some uh, principles to see together, and then some ideas for us each to examine our own lives and see our own devotion to the Lord and whether we are worshiping Him and ministering to Him, how we can apply these truths to our own lives. So first of all, the setting, verse 1, says, Now in the church that was at Antioch. So after Barnabas and Saul have returned to Antioch, bringing John Mark with them, these events that we're looking at take place in the church there at Antioch. This is approximately A.D. 47 when this is happening, because that's when the first missionary journey likely occurred. It's from about A.D. 47 to A.D. 49. So we're looking at approximately, if you will, 17 years after the Lord Jesus Christ's ascension. So in the church, there are these five men listed, and they appear to be leaders within this church at Antioch. The Lord has given them these leaders. The commentary says about this, that this was Antioch in Syria, And there was a gospel church there, and where the disciples were first called Christians, you remember. And this is from whence Saul and Barnabas had been sent to Jerusalem with a supply for the poor saints there. Remember we looked at that in chapter 12. In a time of famine, and from whence they were now returned. And here were certain prophets and teachers. So they're back in Antioch. They've accomplished one mission together, and they've drawn together with three other church leaders at this point in time. The text goes on and tells us that there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So let's look at these five individuals here. We, We see this, well first let's start with the idea of prophets and teachers. A prophet in this setting is one who receives immediate revelation directly from God. And this is an active office only during times when the scriptural canon was open during the time frame of the giving of Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture. So there were time frames for Old Testament prophets to be active and then time for the New Testament prophets to be active. That kind of office is now finished. And what we see now in its place is the work of preaching, where we take the word of God given via the prophets and we preach it. We bring it to our hearts and minds through the work of preaching. So preaching is the the, if you will, the fruit, the outworking of God giving the word of God to his church and other things as well. Now, teachers are different than the prophets. They're one who instructs the church in God's word, and this is an ongoing, an ongoing office for God's church. So teaching and preaching are closely related, and you can see that uh, we don't know, maybe one person would have both gifts or maybe... Um, some of these individuals only had one gift or the other. We don't really know how it's mixed, but we know there's prophetic work, and there's teaching work, and that some are called prophets and some are called teachers. Commentary says Christ, when he ascended on high, gave some prophets and some teachers, and these were both. So in Ephesians 4, we learn that Jesus gave these gifts of the office and those to fill the office to his church. And we're seeing that play out here. Going on with the commentary Agabus seems to have been a prophet and not a teacher, and many were teachers who were not prophets, but those here mentioned were at times divinely inspired and had instructions immediately from heaven upon special occasions which gave them the title of prophets. And withal, they were stated teachers, there were stated teachers of the church in their religious assemblies, expounded the scriptures and opened the doctrine of Christ with suitable applications. These were the prophets and scribes or teachers which Christ had promised to send. Christ made a promise in Matthew 23 to send such teachers and scribes and prophets to his church. Such as were every way qualified for the service of the Christian church. <clears throat> so this is the Lord Jesus Christ keeping his promise to his church. To give them the leaders that they need. Barnabas. He's well known to us by now. He's the Levite. Remember Barnabas means son of encouragement, son of comfort, son of consolation, son of rest, and he's from Cyprus, and he sold his land and gave the proceeds to the apostles. He's also the one who helped Saul meet the apostles in Jerusalem. He also encouraged and strengthened the gospel at Antioch when he was sent there, after the gospel had come there. He went and retrieved Saul from Tarsus, and he taught with Saul at Antioch for about a year, and a lot of people believed and grew up in the faith. And he had gone with Saul throughout Judea to deliver financial assistance during the famine. So Barnabas, we, he's well-known to us, but it's worth remembering him. He's a good man, he's well-known, and he's trusted throughout the church. <clears throat> and he's a leader there. And commentary says he's first named probably because he was the eldest. That's speculation. Next is Simeon, who was called Niger. And the commentary says, Simeon might have been a black man of African origin as his gris Latin name Niger suggests, a term that means dark complexioned or black. So Simon, Simeon, who was called Niger, that's all we know about him. Next is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is an area in modern-day Libya. We've looked at that before. That's North Africa. It's on the Mediterranean coast. The southern Mediterranean coast is where this is. And it's good, I think, now to recall the description of the establishment of the church at Antioch back in chapter 11, because it bears on this situation. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." So perhaps this Lucius that's being mentioned, Lucius of Cyrene, was one of these men from Cyrene who helped establish this church. Now interestingly, some believe that this Lucius may be Luke, the author of Acts. Other scholars uh, doubt that. Uh, Paul does list a Lucius in Romans 16.1 when he's towards the end. you know how at the end he would often send salutations from the people that he's with? He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius... Jason and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. And some believe this Lucius to be Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. And so when you look at the details of this list in Romans 16 and some other lists elsewhere, there's some pretty strong arguments that could be made that this Lucius in Romans 16, that's not verse verse 1, it's a different verse, but it's Romans 16, that this Lucius in this list is Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, and Luke, the author of the book of Acts. And so then, if he's called Lucius in Romans 16, and there's a Lucius here, you can see the possibility that that could be him. Commentary says, Lucius of Cyrene, who some think was the same with this Luke that wrote the Acts, originally a Cyrenian and educated in the Cyrenian college or synagogue at Jerusalem, and there first receiving the gospel. So there's, there's a lot of studies that have been done about Luke and his background, was he Gentile, was he Jewish, and about... Uh, his gospel and the book of Acts, and then extending into the study of Hebrews, which we've talked about before. So maybe that's the same Luke we don't know for sure. We know he's from northern Africa, this Lucius of Cyrene, the area of modern-day Libya. Next, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. Who is this Herod? This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. So if you flip to the back of your notes, you can see family tree there of Herod the Great. I thought it would make it a little bit easier for us. As we're talking about the Herods this time, you can actually see the family tree. I think that helps a little bit. And you can see there, when you look, uh, see all of his wives that Herod the Great had? That's a bad sign, right? (laughs) He wasn't so great, right? And then you see the four there that are the Tetrarchs. And you can see the scriptures associated with them. And we see that this Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. Okay, we've looked at him before. And he reigned uh, from about uh, 4 B.C. to about 39 A.D. And his actions are described to us in Luke 13. So this is Herod the Tetrarch. Um, so let's talk about Menaean. He'd been brought up with Herod Antipas, that's the son of Herod the First, as I've said. And he was the Tetrarch ruling over Galilee during the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. Some have linked Manan with Chusa, a steward of Herod Antipas, perhaps a manager of one of his estates. And this is kind of one of the themes we'll see, is there's a number of different connected people to the court of Herod throughout the book of Acts, and listed in, in the other parts of the New Testament as well. Going on, whose wife Joanna was among the women who accompanied Jesus. This connection must remain hypothetical, however. Manan evidently belonged to a noble Jewish family with connection to the court of Herod I in Jerusalem. Since Herod I made sure that his sons had a good Greek education, the same can be assumed for Menaean, who thus belonged to the late aristocracy in Jerusalem or in Galilee. Since brought up was used as a title, Manan, before his conversion, could have held an influential position at the court of Herod Antipas. So you see the variety of these leaders and their backgrounds. We see uh, the African background uh, from probably two of them and we see now the uh, noble background of at least one of them. We know Saul's background, and we know a little bit about Barnabas and his background there from the Mediterranean. So Saul is the last one listed probably because he was the youngest of them. He's an apostle, we know this, and he's a former persecutor of God's church. Commentary says Saul last probably because he was the youngest, but after the last became the first and more eminent in the church. Another commentary says he was a diaspora Jew from Tarsus who had studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And you remember Tarsus there is in the northeast, northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, not too far from Antioch, kind of around the corner of the coast there going a little to the northwest from Antioch is where Tarsus is. So this is worth bearing in mind that Saul's not too far away from his hometown at this point in time. So he was a diaspora Jew from Tarsus who had studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was present when Stephen was executed. He persecuted the believers in Judea and had been a missionary in Damascus, in Nabataea, and in Cilicia before coming to Antioch. So what held these five people together? One thing. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the same for us throughout all the ages. The one thing that holds his people together is Christ himself. It's not our backgrounds. It's not our common interests. It's Christ himself. So what are they doing? They ministered to the Lord and fasted. And it says... As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. So there's this sense that this is what they did. This is what these leaders were about. They ministered to the Lord and they fasted. They worshipped God. Their lives were lives of devotion together as leaders of God's church. Commentary says, and so it's worth noting that the Holy Spirit speaks into their worship of the Lord. They're ministering to the Lord is the setting in which God speaks to them. This is an important point that we see here. Commentary says, Returning to discuss the church at Antioch, Luke notes the presence of teachers and prophets engaged in worship and fasting. So the call takes place during a time of spiritual focus on God. So one mistake we can make right now is to think, yeah, wow, that's what church leaders should be doing. And that's, no, that's not how we should see this. What we should say is, wow, that's great. The church leaders were doing that and leading everyone else into it as well. Commentary says, another one says, the worship of the church in Antioch would have included prayers as well as teaching and the breaking of bread. It also included the practice of fasting, evidently a regular part of the devotional discipline of the congregation. Evidently a regular part of, of the devotional discipline of the congregation. And that's kind of found there in that present participle, the nature of that word, is that verb there. <clears throat> they ministered to the Lord and fasted. So we, we want to pause and think about this a little bit. I'll hear this from the commentary as well. Diligent, faithful teachers do truly minister unto the Lord. Those that instruct Christians serve Christ They really do him honor and carry on the interest of his kingdom. So the idea here is whether you're a minister or whether you're um, a church member, whether you're a leader or not, when you serve others in the body of Christ, you minister to the Lord himself. So that's one way that this is applied. Those that minister to the church in praying and preaching minister unto the Lord, for they are the church's servants for Christ's sake. To him they must have an eye in their ministrations, and from him they shall have their recompense. So it's important to see that as we minister to one another, we're ministering to Christ himself. Ministering to the church is ministering to the Lord. But also, worship together, what we're doing here today, the liturgy of the the church, which is we're going to see where this word comes from, is direct ministering unto the Lord himself. So when you are here in spirit and truth and by faith, these words are coming out of your mouth not because of what's written on the page, but what's been written on your heart by God Himself, and you're speaking these words to God and participating in the worship of God, you are ministering unto the Lord Himself. And we together as a body are bringing our corporate ministry, service, tender-hearted worship to God Himself. So this is where the idea, that's why it says the Lord's service on the Lord's day. At the beginning of our liturgies. You've seen that before. And it's, it's intentionally ambiguous. Because it is the Lord's service. Him to us first. But it's also our ministry to Him. In response. And that goes back and forth. Now and forever. So it's the Lord's service. On the Lord's day. Now we minister into the Lord. Because He first ministers to us. But we do minister to Him. That deserves a moment of reflection, does it not? The Lord himself ministered to by us. Now, it means to do a service. The word has a broader meaning. To perform a work. And it's used of priests and Levites who were busied with the sacred rites in the tabernacle or the temple. But it's also used of Christians serving Christ, whether by prayer or by instructing others concerning the gospel or in some other way. So this word here is used here and only two other places in the New Testament. Acts 15.27, it pertains to acts of giving. So you see the ministry to others. And then Hebrews 10.11, it clearly is referencing priestly Old Testament work. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So this is the root word for liturgy when you look at the Greek word there. It is the, the root word for our English word, liturgy. And it, is, it encompasses the concept of service, especially from a heart of love to others and to God. And it often has a form associated with it. So what else did they do? They fasted. <clears throat> so they ministered to the Lord and they fasted. These are two separate activities. They can occur together or they can occur individually apart from one another. Fasting is the leaving off of food for a time for a specific purpose. So one of the things that's going to come to your mind, hopefully, is how much is fasting a part of my life? Commentary says to abstain. Fasting is to abstain as a religious exercise from food and drink, either entirely if the fast lasted but a single day, or from customary and choice nourishment if it continued several days. So that's what it is. Commentary, another one says, Religious fasting is of use in our ministering to the Lord. So here we see the two being brought together, both as a sign of our humiliation and as a means of our mortification. And mortification means, you know, as our sin being put to death. So fasting is an assistance in our sanctification process. Though it was not so much practiced by the disciples of Christ while the bridegroom was with them, remember, they were curious, John's disciples, why don't you fast? And Jesus was still with them. But now he's not. Yet after the bridegroom was taken away, they abounded in it as those that had well learned to deny themselves and to endure hardness. And so fasting is an important ongoing activity in this healthy church in Antioch, that somehow the leaders had incorporated into their own ministering to the Lord, and it appears as we'll go on, was also incorporated into the life of the church with some degree of regularity and also on special occasions, as we will see going on. So what happens in this context of worship? You'll hear me use the word doxological. Doxological. And that has to do with worship, to praise God, to be together for the purpose of drawing near to Him and extolling Him together in corporate worship. What happens? The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And This is an important life principle. If you would seek wisdom from God, if you would seek the mind of God, you must First, seek the face of God. We go to Him to worship Him and to minister to Him, and He blesses us in that communion exchange with wisdom, with knowledge that matters for our lives. This is spelled out for us in uh, Psalm 25. It's a beautiful psalm. I've only uh, picked out three verses for us. You really should read the whole psalm. It fits into what we're learning today. I'm just drawing out these three verses Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. So the state of our relationship with God is an important part of, an essential part of walking in wisdom. You see the humility that's attached to this. So humility before God and the worship of God, the glad worship of God, is a a critical context if we want wisdom, if we'd like to know important answers to important questions. Do you have any important questions going on in your life right now? God promises to give you wisdom if you ask him for wisdom. But if you only want answers to your questions and you don't want him, he may take you through a process before he gives you any wisdom to where you find that the greatest gift you can ever have is simple nearness to God, simple worship of God. Reverence, awe, love, praise, gratitude from inside to outside because we've been made new, expressed toward God. Together, we minister to the Lord when this is happening. So when we arrive filled with God's Spirit, grateful for what He has done, and His life flows in and through us, we are ministering to the Lord together. And He is pleased. When we minister to Him as a response to Him ministering to us. And in this communion, that's what we're talking about. This is communion. This is experiencing relationship with God. The Lord teaches us. That's what Psalm 25 tells us. We need the doxological context of teaching, of instruction. Praise God for good books. Praise God for podcasts. Praise God for great teachers that are out there. But none of that is ever meant to replace the doxological, the worship context of teaching and of learning from God. In addition to this, when we are drawing near to him as his people and worshiping him, we see in Psalm 25 that he causes us to dwell in security. We see generational outcomes. He gives our descendants the earth. And now hear this. The secret of the Lord, it's worth saying it again is with us and he shows us his covenant his merciful kindness to us in Christ. And so when we have this reverence towards God and this gratitude towards God because of what he's done for us in Christ and we draw near to him to worship him as his people wonderful beautiful things happen. And he promises us draw near to me and what? He will draw near to us. Right? So when we come together, whether it's here, which is very important, or whether it's in your own time of worship of God personally or in your family times of worship, we should expect for the Holy Spirit to speak to us as well by his word and to encourage us and lead us and guide us. So do you need wisdom from God? Well, seek his face. You want to know his mind? Seek his face. Commentary says the orders given by the Holy Ghost for the setting apart of Barnabas and Saul while they were engaged in public exercises, the ministers of the several congregations in the city joining in one solemn fast or day of prayer. The Holy Ghost said either by a voice from heaven or by a strong impulse on the minds of those of them that were prophets, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. So this is what the Lord said to them. So let's look at this idea of the Lord saying, now separate to me. So this is a specific kind of wisdom. This is a unique kind of wisdom. All of us have thought through this before. What, where am I going to live? What is my calling in this life? Who am I to marry? The big questions of life. These come before us. What will my occupation be? The big questions of life come to us and this is definitely a big question in the life for Barnabas and Saul. So to separate means to mark off from others by boundaries, to limit, to separate. And it can be a bad sense, it can be to exclude somebody or it can be in a good sense to appoint, to set apart for some purpose. So it means to divide and put over here for a specific use and you're, so you're separated. Christ by his spirit has the nomination of his ministers. So Jesus is the one who chooses his ministers. For it is by the spirit of Christ that they are qualified in some measure, in some measure, for his services, inclined to it and taken off from other cares inconsistent with it. There are some whom the Holy Ghost has separated for the service of Christ, has distinguished from others as men that are offered and that willingly offer themselves to the temple service. And concerning them directions are given to those who are competent judges of the sufficiency of the abilities and the sincerity of the inclination. So you see that the Holy Spirit commands the church to separate them. And so you see the church has a role in this ordination process. There's both an internal calling that a man who's called to ministry will have. And he will be also gifted to that ministry but there will also be an external calling. His community will see the giftedness and testify to the legitimacy of the internal calling, what the commentary here calls the sincerity of the inclination. Going on, Christ's ministers are separated to him and to the Holy Ghost. It says, separate them to me. So he's drawing them into himself in a unique and special way. They are to be employed in Christ's work and under the Spirit's guidance to the glory of God the Father. So they had already been set apart to some extent, but in this case, they're set apart for a special missions work. And we haven't brought this up yet today, but this is where the great and glorious expanding ministry to the Gentiles first begins. We've got a taste of it with Cornelius, and at this point in the story, you're almost like, what about the Gentiles? Well, here we go. Now they're called to go to the Gentiles. So also we see that Barnabas and Saul are called together. This is worth noting. They were not alone. So the message here is the strength that comes in being with someone else in ministry and also beware of loners. Beware of being a loner. We need one another and especially in very difficult ministries like what they were called to. These two men are also friends. We looked at that last week, and this is a great example of the fruitfulness of their genuine Christian friendship. Remember what we talked about: two things. They are devoted to God's will. They are devoted to doing God's will. Right? It's not a football team. It's it's not uh, some other surface thing. It's not a sport event. Right? It's not whether they enjoyed this particular uh, part of the Roman culture or that particular place uh, along the coastline. No, what they had in common that made them friends is their love for Christ and their desire to do his will and their common devotion to being sanctified, to being made like Christ in this process that they were going to go through together. This is Christian friendship. This is genuine Christian friendship. And, and, and I'll, I'll pray for me. I'm going off text a little bit here. I do want to emphasize to you, brothers and sisters, that there are great counterfeits to this in the world today, okay? And so friendships will be based on other things, superficial things, what you wear, where you work, your accent. We could go on and on, right? And even personalities that click, sometimes you can think that's friendship. It's not. That is not Christian friendship. Christian friendship is these two things. Mutually devoted to Christ's kingdom and mutually devoted to being changed together. And then you end up, because of God's providence, doing things together, and that's Christian friendship. Okay? It's not based on feelings. It's based on these two things here. Next. They're called apart for work. Okay? They're called apart for work. For all who would consider the work of church office know that it is a labor, it is a working, it is an exertion, it is strenuous, and it is hard, and it is strenuous of body, of mind, and soul. It is not playtime, it is wartime, and joy is our greatest weapon. And so they need one another to be mutually encouraged to continue in their worship and their joyful service together. And we'll see examples of that as they serve together during this first missionary journey. We'll see them encouraging one another as they go to the Gentiles. And they're working. We're going to see all that they did. Commentary says, All that are separated to Christ as his ministers are separated to work. Christ keeps no servants to be idle. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. That is what is he is separated to, to labor in the word and doctrine. They are separated to take pains, not to take state. And this isn't just true for ministers. This is true for, for those who are called to church office. This is true for all of us because we're all ministers. We're all called to minister to one another. We're all called to serve. And idleness is a great sin. So beware of being idle and wasting time um, We could go on and on about that, couldn't we? And I feel deeply convicted myself as I say these things. God chose their work and called them to it. That's the next thing we see. They didn't make the work up for themselves. God says, for the work to which I have called them. And note that it had already been decided. So they knew what their calling was. They both knew, probably Barnabas knew, but Paul definitely knew that he had been called to go to the Gentiles. So he knew his general calling but did he know what island to go to first? Did he know with whom to go? Did he know when to go? Did he know which church was going to send him and pray for him? He didn't know these things yet. So sometimes it happens like that. We get a a general understanding from God. And then he gives us these details as we worship him. He clarifies things and shows us more. Commentary says, He does not specify the work, but refers to a former call of which they themselves knew the meaning, whether others did or not, As for Saul, he was particularly told that he must bear Christ's name to the Gentiles. Remember, that was in chapter 9. That he must be sent to the Gentiles. And he talks about that later in chapter 22 when he recaps his earlier days. The matter was settled between them at Jerusalem before this, as Peter, James, and John laid out themselves among those of the circumcision so Paul and Barnabas could go to the heathen. And that's in Galatians 2. So there's this idea that they already knew this. Yet they would not thrust themselves into this harvest until they received their orders from the Lord of the harvest. So this demonstrates to us patience and humility, their wisdom to know that they, they didn't want to go until it was time to go. So, how does the church respond? Fasting and prayer. So, more of the same, more worship of God, and they laid hands on them and sent them away. So you see this solemn, special event, this solemn occasion takes place. And then they obey. All of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is communion with God. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You worship God. What do you do when you do know what to do? You worship God. What do you do when it's a mixture of both? You worship God. What do you do when your mind doesn't even work anymore? Pray that when I have my dementia later in my life that I will worship God. (laughs) Do you see? All of life for us Christians is to worship God. So they respond with more fasting and prayer. Everything in Christ we find, everything that we have in Christ that is ours, we find in the experiential context of worshiping God. If we do not worship God, then we do not appropriate experientially the things that are ours. It's like an orphan who's running around in the street, tattered clothing and bones showing because he's so hungry and then you find out that this teenager is the son of a king and he just refuses to go and talk to his father and his father has called for him and sent messengers to him and shown him exactly where to go and shown him where all the, that is his and he has not gone there it's his but is he experiencing the fruit of it does this, does this describe your life in any extent In terms of knowing the treasures that are yours in Christ. Commentary says they prayed for them. When good men are going forth about good work. They ought to be solemnly and particularly prayed for. Especially by their brethren that are their fellow laborers. And their fellow soldiers. They joined fasting with their prayers. As they did in their other ministrations. Christ has taught us by his abstaining from sleep. A night fast, if I may so call it, says the commentary. He did that the night before he sent forth his apostles, that he might spend it in prayer. Calvin talks about this. This is really helpful from Calvin. That they may obey the oracle, that they do not only send Paul and Barnabas away, but also with a solemn rite, they appoint them to be the apostles of the Gentiles. It is without question that this was a public fast, So here Calvin is distinguishing between the fast that we'd heard of earlier, that perhaps it wasn't a public fast, but that now this one is definitely a public fast. Luke said before that they were fasting for as much as they were busied in their ministry. It might be that that was according to the custom, but now there is another reason for the fasting. For in appointing a public fast, which used to be done in hard matters and of great importance, They provoke both themselves and others unto an earnest ferventness in prayer. Did you hear that? They provoke both themselves and others unto an earnest ferventness in prayer. This is going to come back to us when we get to the application section. For this is oftentimes added in Scripture as a help to prayer. But it was a matter of such weight to erect the kingdom of Christ amongst the Gentiles that the teachers of Antioch do not without cause earnestly pray the Lord that the Lord will enable His servants. And that was not the end of their prayer, that God would, by His Spirit of wisdom and discretion, govern their judgments in choosing, because all disputation or doubting concerning this matter was taken away. But that God would furnish those with the Spirit of wisdom and strength whom He had already chosen to Himself. That He would strengthen them with His power against all the invasions of Satan in the world. And we're going to see what they face as they go on that he would bless their labors, that they might not be unfruitful, that he would open a gate for the new preaching of the gospel. They prayed with understanding as God had told them what these men were called to. And these prayers we will see answered in this first missionary journey. We can learn from this. But we see also this solemn occasion, this solemn event takes place, which we can call an ordination or a commissioning, they respond by laying hands on Barnabas and Saul. So they are doing what the Holy Spirit has told them to do. They've prayed and they've fasted and they've come to this moment and they lay their hands on them and they say, you are sent by God and we agree with God and we send you. Commentary says, as noted in earlier verses, the laying on of hands points to the establishing of connection and is used in commissioning and in healing. So they are representatives of the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch has owned them, has owned this ministry, and is sending them to go and do this ministry. You have to think that they probably provided initial means for them to be able to go and to do this ministry. The laying on of hands is not just a symbol. This is not a call into a new office, as their roles is already defined before the call. Rather, it is an identification with the specific work to which God has called them. So the only two occurrences of this verb in Acts are in these verses the, about fasting. The noun form appears in Acts 14 and 27, and the only occurrence of this verb here, the one we've already looked at regarding liturgy, in Acts also appears here. It's the only time. In the Old Testament, it's mostly used for priestly service, as we've discussed But Luke uses it here to indicate prayer, which is a key ministry of believer priests. So, here is a church that has seen the need to reach out to the world as its members draw near to God. It's another important principle. As we draw near to God, as we worship and draw near to Him, He will work in us the awareness of the need to reach out to the world. As we draw near to Him and He draws near to us, we also will reach out to the world. And we will want to pray for a new gospel opportunity like they did into the realm that we are called into. So their heart, the commentary says, has become wedded to God's calling as a result. Isn't that beautiful? When we worship God, He weds our hearts to His calling. They commission their messengers to their work for the world. They are acting as believer priests on behalf of God. Worship and missions appear side by side as key tasks of the church. This is important. So what's next? They obey. Good intentions. We know about that, right? That that path that is paved with good intentions. They didn't just pray. They didn't just fast. They didn't just lay hands on them. They sent them away. So... The impression here is if Barnabas and Saul had tried to stay, they would have said, no, you can't stay here. So the Father sent Jesus. There's a sending here. There's a sending. Jesus sent his apostles. The Antioch church sends these two men. And one thing to look at here is the partings. The partings for God's glory and name. We parents, we sin for the glory of God sometimes when our children go elsewhere. You with little ones, prepare your hearts and minds now for this. We rejoice in every parting for the glory of God. Do we not? This is a good word for all of us, brothers and sisters. When Jesus calls, we follow Him, knowing that the pain of parting plants great seeds within us And around us. For his name. So. Let's take a moment to. Look at a few principles. And examine our own lives. Together. Individually. In your family life. And also corporately. Some principles. Brothers and sisters. The Lord provides leaders. For his church. Jesus Christ gives gifts to his church. He provides leaders for his church and they are given a specific calling to minister to him and to the members of the church to serve in specific ways of teaching, preaching, leading in fasting and in prayers and in worship of God. Leaders from God, they minister to his church, doing it through those ways that I've listed. Prayer, fasting, teaching, preaching. Preaching. Leaders from God also minister to the Lord himself as they lead the assembled church into praise and exaltation and singing and praying during the liturgy of the body, what we're doing now. They minister to the Lord because he first ministers to them. So again, we see the idea here of what God accomplishes. You've heard the term dialogical. It's probably, you know, it's not a monologue. God speaks to us and we reply to him and he replies to us and we speak to him. It's a constant back and forth between us and God. This is called communion and this is what God has called us to as his people. The Lord responds from heaven when his beloved, res, beloved bride ministers unto him. And recall, we minister unto God indirectly to his body, right, the church. When we serve one another, we're ministering to Christ and directly when we come together and we worship Him and we praise Him. We can't see Him. We can't see the angels. We can't hear the songs on Mount Zion. But we are in their midst. And we are praising and worshiping Him and adding to the worship of heaven as we draw together. And this pleases our Lord's heart. And so the Lord's response here in today's text was to begin the practical beginning of the work that He had already defined. So timing wisdom, individuals involved wisdom, where to go wisdom emerged from the context of worship. We should expect the same thing. We should expect to see the Lord working in the key questions of our lives in the context of worship, in the context of His Word brought forth in worship. Leaders from God, another principle, leaders from God include fasting as a part of their ongoing worship and also a part of special occasions like ordinations or commissions. Looking back, it might have been a really good thing to have fasting associated with the time leading up to our name change. Looking back, it seems as though it it would have been wise to have fasting perhaps connected to our time of scheduled prayers, our prayer meetings that we have. Perhaps we will be calling for times of fasting leading up to our prayer meetings in the future to spur us on to more fervency in our prayer, to heighten in our minds awareness the importance of this time of prayer and the fruitfulness of it that we can expect and to draw our attention away from the things of this world through this fast and to tighten our focus upon the Lord. God's people will obey His calling even when it's hard. Think about this Gentile work that Saul and Barnabas are called to. Think about where they go and the culture they go into and the trust that they must have. God's people obey even hard callings. Solemn occasions to fast and pray include such things as ordinations and commissionings. It should include, if you think about it, these big things in life. Maybe wedding days, maybe days of birth. The big things in life in addition to times of regularly occurring fasting. Brothers and sisters, the important decisions in life may often involve partings. And we need to prepare ourselves for the partings that God may call us to experience for His glory, for His namesake. So is your life a life of ministering to the Lord and to His people? Wow, how much of your life is ministering to yourself? Much of your life is based on time to yourself. and Time to do things for yourself. Me time. This really gets me. What is your prayer life like individually? What is your life like in terms of fasting? Have you considered how fasting would fit into your own life? How does the word of God fit into your life? When we look at this text and we see the Holy Spirit Speaking. Today, in today's world, that would be, how does the Word of God fit into your life, in your individual life? You know, so many of us as Christians, if you could just follow us around, and you could videotape all 24 hours of my life, 48 hours, or the last week, and play it on a screen. Wow, what would that look like? What story would that tell of who you're serving? And you know, the reason for this is, is we need more love for God. We need more gratitude towards him.
1: And so this is how we
0: can look at our own lives now and we can say, Lord, give us the hearts of these five men that were described to us. Give us these types of hearts of love and devotion to you. Are you seeking calling? Are you seeking wisdom in a particular part of your life? Brothers and sisters, do not miss the doxological fountain of your search for wisdom. Please do not miss that. When you open the Word of God, okay, do you open the Word of God when you're seeking wisdom? Okay. When you open the Word of God, when you seek wisdom from counselors who open the Word of God, is it worshipful? Is it in the context of worshiping your Father in heaven and loving Him? Or are you just after a quick answer? Seek His face to know His mind. Brothers and sisters, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. That's what Psalm 25 tells us. Now, I've already mentioned it, but I want us to be thinking about fasting, being attached to ministering to the Lord, whether it's personally or whether it's in your family life. Perhaps your family is seeking the Lord for some things right now. Think about attaching fasting to those questings before God. Think about how fasting can mute and dull those creaturely satisfactions that will make the longing for God ever so small as it may be. That little flame, maybe you'll perceive it more if the creaturely satisfactions are laid aside. So in your family, what role is fasting playing in your family? I encourage you to consider this in your family life. What role does fasting play? And then for us corporately, I've already mentioned it. Pray for your church leaders to know how to be like these leaders, to incorporate fasting in the life of our church and the ministering to the Lord that we do. Don't let your heart be discouraged with partings past or partings to come. It's all for Him and He gives us far more than we give to Him. And every seed that we plant will come forth and we can expect to see the Lord satisfy those longings that we have for those that we love who are not with us, that we do not get to see as often as we would desire. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask, Lord, that these truths from your word that demonstrate your great love for your church and the love that your people have for you, They would come forth in each of our lives individually, in our families, and corporately, Lord. That You would show us, Holy Spirit, how to incorporate these great truths into our lives. That we would be overflowing with love for You. That we'd be ministering to You, Lord Jesus, and to Your people. And that we would know how and when to fast. And that the fasting would be put to use by Your Spirit for us to know You and to love You more. That You would grant to us, Lord, the wisdom that we need in our lives, Lord, the big questions that are before us and the small questions as well. And that you would work in us to be, Lord, those who worship you, those who praise you day in and day out and experience your love, finding all the treasures of Christ brought to us by the work of your Spirit in us. Oh, Father, we love you. We praise you. Bless us in this day and every day to come to walk in worship of you. Jesus' name.